All right. Well, the last two weeks, we started our introduction into the book of Judges. And today we're going to look at the first three of the Judges this morning. Now, it's important to know that when we talk about Judges, we're not talking about judgmental people. Uh, We're not talking about a Matthew chapter 7 situation where it says, judge not that you may be judged. We're also not talking about judges in the sense of a Western mindset. Uh, We're not talking about somebody sitting in a robe with a gavel in hand, sitting behind a bench, uh, adjudicating a case. We're not talking about Judge Judy here. Uh, We're talking about military leaders that God raises up to deliver the nation of Israel from bondage and slavery. And you go, well, why are they in bondage and slavery? Because they went through the cycle of sin and there's four phases to that cycle of sin. And what we see, especially in Othniel and Ehud, which are the first two judges, that all of our judges go through this cycle uh, or the nation of Israel goes through this cycle and therefore they need a judge. So the first of the four phases is one of rebellion where they turn away from God. They say, we're tired of you, God. We're tired of your promises. We're tired of your goodness in our life. We're going to try something new. We're going to chase after a false God. And so we're going to enter into rebellion, which leads to our second phase, which is one of retribution, where God gives them over to their enemies and they become captives. They become slaves to a foreign land. And through that, they begin to serve that God, serve those kings and uh Finally, they finally cry out to God, they repent of their sins, and God rescues them. So uh, the third phase of that would be one of repentance, where in humility, they cry out to God, they're seeking his forgiveness, they're seeking his reconciliation, and God then leads to the fourth phase, one of restoration, where God raises up a judge to deliver them, and they experience peace with God and in the land for a certain period of time. Sounds like a very encouraging uh, passage, and that's where we're in, one of the darkest times of Israel's history. But we're going to look at all three of these judges, Othniel, Ehud, and then Shamgar, very popular names, probably not something you're going to name any of your children, but they're important for us to understand and dive into. And so let's look at Othniel, the first one, verses 7 through 11. And we see the first phase of... uh, Israel's sin in their rebellion in verse seven. It says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So here they go, instead of serving God and being faithful to him, they enter into rebellion. They do what is evil in God's eyes and they begin to serve the gods of the land that they were there. And they do this evil in two ways. One, they forgot their Lord, the Lord, their God. They forgot God. They forgot the covenant that God had made with him. They forgot the covenant that God had made with Abraham, that in him, there would be great descendants. And in him, all the other nations would be blessed. And through Abraham's line, many nations would come into relationship with God. They forgot that covenant. They forgot God. They forgot that they had been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, where they had no day off, no rights, and no rest. And for 400 years, they were just enslaved to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And God raises up Moses to save them and lead them out of the wilderness. They forget about the Red Sea where they pass through the Red Sea on dry ground where God parts the Red Sea. And as the Egyptians are trying to come in and capture them, the seas close up and destroy the Egyptian army and they forgot God here. 
They also forgot the very covenant that God had made with them in Exodus chapter 19, where they come to the bottom of the Mount Sinai and God comes up and says, do you want to be my special people? You just saw how I redeemed you out of slavery. Do you want to be my chosen people? Do you want to be my chosen nation? They say, we're all in. What you just did is great. We remember you. We want to be faithful to you. And they forget that promise. They forget the very commandments of God that were laid out in Exodus chapter 20, where he lays out his governance of how he was going to govern his people and be different than every other nation because God was going to be their king. God was going to set up his governance and they forget God. You see, God is different than the nation of Israel. God is different than us. In Isaiah 49, 15, it says, God never forgot them. When they were faithless, God remained faithful. God continued to never forget the promises he made to Abraham, how he delivered them out of Egypt. He did not forget how uh, he set up his governance and he chose them, and yet they forgot God. They stopped remembering him. And what this shows is just the faithfulness of God, that throughout generation to generation, he remained faithful to them and faithful to them. Now we go, we're not like the nation of Israel. We would never forget God if he did those great things in our lives. Well, the sad reality is, is too often that is our story. We see God do incredible things out of our lives. He redeems us. He pulls at us the slave market of sin. He redeems our life. He saves us. We get baptized. We publicly declare our faith. We begin to serve him and his kingdom. And five years goes by and erosion starts taking place. We stop giving. We stop serving. We stop attending, which leads to we stop believing. And we start believing in the gods of Lane County, such as greed. We start believing in this new age idea that we could just uh, believe in multiple spiritualities. We start believing in the God of self and the centrality of who we are. We start believing in the God of pleasure that whatever makes me feel good, whatever makes me happy, that's what I start serving. And we too fall into, while a different God, we still forget God like the nation of Israel. And what do they do? The second reason for God's ang- uh, God, uh, them doing evil is they serve false gods. They serve the God of Baal and Asherah. Now, these were two gods that would get together, that was believed they would get together and they would enter into a sexual relation and they would have offsprings. And so they were known as the fertility God. So if you believed in them, if you worshiped them, it was believed that you would have a great fertile offspring, such as your crops would grow strong, your animals would grow strong, your animals would multiply, and you would worship them. But this is where it pictures how dark and how evil it truly was, because the way that you would worship them was you would go sleep with a priest or a a priestess, and during the very sexual perverted acts, you would offer up prayers on behalf of Asherah and Baal, praying that your crop would grow strong, that your animals would grow strong, and that your animals would multiply and you'd have a great harvest. And this is where Israel finds themselves worshiping this type of God. Uh, Now we see the retribution in verse eight, the retribution. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the cushion, Risha Theum. Okay, don't say that name very often. Um, And so what we see here is that the anger of the Lord arises from them. Uh, on towards them. And you go, well, this doesn't sound like a very loving God. It doesn't sound like the God of the New Testament. And it's true. Exodus chapter 34, verse six says that God is slow to anger. 
He is long-suffering. He is patient. But verse 7 says that he will not clear the guilty, meaning he's not going to just ignore sin. He's not going to act like, ah, it's no big deal. He's going to deal with it, and he's going to deal with it head on. And that's why they've already given themselves over to slavery, to these false gods. He's like, just go serve the God of Mesopotamia. Go serve the God of the land. Let's make this a little more personal and understand it from this perspective, God's perspective. Pretend like you're in a marriage and you've been married five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. You fought for your marriage. You've made your marriage priority. Uh, You have endured hardship. And one day out of the blue, your spouse comes home and says, this exclusivity I'm done with, I want an open relationship. You're not gonna just ignore it and go, ah, you know what, that's no big deal. No, you're gonna be angry. You're gonna wanna fight for your marriage. You're gonna wanna try and save your marriage or you're gonna be like, fine, you want that? Go get it, but we're done. That's what God's saying here is that a sign of God's grace at this sign is that God says, you go serve these enemies and when you're sick of your sin, when you're sick of your idolatry, you cry out to me and come back to me. And the sad reality was it took Israel eight years to figure this out. Eight years of serving these false gods, provide, uh, promising false realities of a great harvest of, a, of fruitful animals and serving these types of false gods. And after eight years, we see the repentance take place in the nation of Israel, verse nine. It says, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer uh, for the people who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenazar, Caleb's younger brother. So we see now the repentance that takes place where Israel cries out to God, God, save us, forgive us for serving these false gods, forgive us for pursuing other idols in our lives. And may we turn back to you. May we come back to you and may you forgive us and deliver us in this way. This is the sign of repentance. That when you turn away from idols, Thessalonians tells us, and you turn towards the living God. Sometimes with our kids, after we read the Bible at night, we have six, four, and two. We'll do this fun little exercise where they'll face this way. And we say, repent. And they say, turn away from idols and turn towards God. And we'll say, repent, turn away from idols, turn towards God. And it's this symbol, it's this picture of turning away from idols and turning towards the true and the living God. And as you study throughout Israel's history and you study church history, what you realize is revival starts with repentance. When repentance is absent, revival is absent. But when repentance is at the forefront, when we're confessing sin, where we're confessing and crucifying idols and we're declaring who God is and we're worshiping God, that is where revival starts. And that is where revival started for the nation of Israel. It was through their repentance. And so what does God do? He seeks restitution for the people, verses nine through 11. The Lord raised up a deliverer from the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenazar, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan, Risha Theamon, king of Mesopotamia into his hands and his hand prevailed over Cushan, Risha Theamon, so that the land of the rest, the land had rest 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenazar, died. So what do we see here as God seeks restitution for them? He raises up a judge by the name of Othniel. And Othniel, we learn a few things about him. One, 
that he comes from a great military family, that he comes from Caleb's family. Now, Caleb was one of 12 spies sent into Canaan in the book of Joshua, where he said, you are gonna go into uh, you're going to go into Canaan. We've already promised you this land. You're already going to take this land from them. But I want you to go spy out and come back and give a report. And 10 of the spies come back and say, they're too big. They're too strong. We should just settle here. We don't need the land of Canaan. But Caleb comes back and says, no, God has promised this land. We can conquer it. We can take it. God has given it to us. Let's go in and let's do it. So he comes from this great military family who is courageous, who is strong in their convictions, knows what God has called them to, and he was trained in a very similar way. The second thing that it tells us about him is that the spirit of Lord comes upon him. And seven times throughout the book of, the, uh, in book of Judges, we see the spirit of the Lord coming upon a judge for a specific purpose or a specific uh, mission that takes place. And this is different than the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon somebody for a specific mission or a specific purpose. But in the New Testament, the Spirit of God indwells every single person who's placed their faith in Jesus. Jesus says this when he's telling his disciples that he is going to leave and he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And uh, John 14, 17 says, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. You see the difference in those prepositions? He is with you, Old Covenant, Old Testament. He will be in you, indwelling New Testament, post-resurrection, post-ascension of Jesus, after the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts chapter two and indwells all those who place their faith in Jesus. See, the difference there is in the Old Testament, he would come upon them for a specific plan or specific purpose. And you see that seven times in the book of Judges amongst them. David also recognizes that the Holy Spirit has come upon him as the king of Israel. And as the king of Israel, he goes, he's there to guide me, direct me as I rule on behalf of God. Now, David messes up, sleeps with Bathsheba, has her husband Uriah killed, and Bathsheba's pregnant, and he recognizes that his sin could remove the Holy Spirit from him. And that's why in uh, Psalm 51, it says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because he recognizes that the Holy Spirit's presence was there for a specific mission and specific purpose. And David realizes he could have just disqualified himself from having the Spirit's presence on him in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, after the resurrection, after Jesus' ascension, after Pentecost happens and the Spirit descends, we see that the Holy Spirit indwells every single person that places their faith in Jesus. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So he is the guarantee. He is the permanently indwelling that no matter what you've gone through this week, no matter what you've experienced this week, if you have faith in Jesus, you are sealed, signed, delivered, and secure in God's hands. And not just in God's hands, but in Jesus's hands, in the Father's hands, you have nothing to worry about because of your security you have in Christ. 
And if he was to take his Holy Spirit, it would forfeit his nature and go against his very character because he has to live up to the very character that God has given him. But the reality is, is that when the Holy Spirit comes to live with inside of you, when you become a child of God, when you enter into God's army, he gives you all the equipment you need to live for him. He doesn't sell you short on anything. He gives you everything you need. And that's why Jesus sent forth his Holy Spirit. Imagine you join the military, okay? The military gives you the training you need. It gives you the the armor, the clothing, everything you need there. It gives you the gun if you need the gun, and it gives you the tank if you need the tank. The military gives you everything you need to be successful in the military. Or imagine if you're a commercial airline pilot, whether you're flying for Delta or American or United or Allegiance or one of those other airlines. They don't sit there and say, hey, we're going to deduct $1,000 from your paycheck every month to lease out this plane. No, they give you access to aircraft control. They give you the plane to steward and you are flying on their behalf that plane, making sure those passengers get from point A to point B. These airlines give you everything you possibly need to fly. And the reality is God gave you his spirit. God gave you the Holy Spirit so that you have all the equipment you need to live a life of godliness and to follow him. Well, what has he given you? He's given you his word. That It says that your, his word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and therefore you should read it, understand it, read it daily, read it regularly. Once a week is not enough. Spend time in it. He's given you his church as a form of protection, as a surrounding there to protect you and encourage you to follow Jesus locally in this city. He's given you his spirit to illuminate God's truth, to apply God's truth, and to encourage you to live for truth as he grows you and sanctifies you. He's given you a community of Jesus followers so you stop forgetting God and you start remembering God and his faithfulness and his goodness throughout generations of you following Jesus. And this is what the spirit of God does. He has come upon Othniel. He has come on for a specific purpose and a specific plan, and that purpose is, is to deliver the nation of Israel from the king of Moab. Or excuse me, from the king of Mesopotamia. We'll get to Moab next. Uh, and Israel lives at peace for 40 years. So for two generations, Israel is at complete peace with God, complete peace in the land, all because a young family member of Caleb answers the call, allows the spirit of God to lead him and to guide him, and two generations are affected to follow God. Imagine if we had the mindset of Caleb, or imagine if we had uh, somebody like Othniel, and we became that, where we, we believed that God wanted to do great things, we trusted in that thing, and God raises you up, and God calls you to do that. Imagine the revival that would take place in your school this next year, where you were faithful to live out the calling that God had called you to, and to see the kingdom of God advance in your classroom, in your your classmates in that way. Imagine the revival that would happen in your families where you would start believing in what God had done and you start seeing the transformation. I think of VBS this next week and can't wait to see the transformation that happens in these kids' lives, almost 300 of them. And they take it back to some of them, unbelieving family members and revival takes place in their own family. And you start seeing families and generations from this younger generation coming into relationship with Jesus publicly declaring their life through baptism, 
following Jesus, seeking discipleship and growing in the relationship with Jesus. All because a young guy follows Jesus. Let's continue on. Let's look at our second judge here, Ehud. Verses 12 through 30. Now I'm warning you right now, Ehud is not in a children's Bible. So uh, if you're like, I wonder why, you're gonna learn really quickly why. And if you've never read this passage, you will really know why. If you have, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, uh, Ehud, verses 12 through 30, he talks about the second judge. And it follows the same phases of the sin cycle that takes place. And so we see in verse 12, the rebellion of Israel. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, after two generations, 40 years passes by, instead of serving the previous gods, now they serve the gods of the Moabites, and it only took two generations for the nation of Israel to forget God. Two generations, that's it. 40 years. And they said, you know what? We're tired of God's faithfulness. We're tired of God's goodness. We're going to go try something new, something that's different than what we've experienced, and let's go chase after this. And what we see here is we're either growing in our relationship with God or we're eroding in our relationship with God. We are either at the front lines, going to battle, fighting for exclusivity, fighting for our affections to be devoted for him, or we're just eroding away. There is no such thing as complacency. Uh, next to my house, there is a little hill. And my kids will try, a couple months ago, they tried to take a ball and they tried to roll it up the hill. And they're not strong enough to get all the way up the hill, but that ball rolls up that hill. And then when it loses steam and energy, it rolls back down that hill. So they try it again. They roll that ball up that hill. It starts to catch steam. And then it rolls back down that hill. Never did that ball stop on the middle of the hill and just stall out and grow complacent. It was either growing or it was either roading. And the same is true for us. The same is true for the nation of Israel. Instead of them continuing to stay faithful to God, fighting for uh, him being the priority of their life, they started to erode and stop serving God. They started to forget God. They stopped remembering God. And therefore they chased after these foreign gods. So the cycle continues. We see the retribution take place, verses 12 through 14. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So God raises up a king, says, fine, you want to go serve these false gods? Eglon is going to be the king of Moab, and I'm going to raise him up. He partners together with the Ammonites and the Amalekites and they defeat Israel and they move into the city of Palms, it tells us, which was formerly known as Jericho, if you've read the book of Joshua. And that is where the tribe of Reuben was occupied. And for 18 years, the nation of Israel serves the God or the king of Eglon, the Moabite gods. For 18 years, they do this until finally we see them cry out to God and repent in verse 15, seeing the third cycle. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, Benjamite, a left-handed man. So they finally, after 18 years, cry out to God and God is going to deliver them by the hand of Ehud. But God hears their cries, raises up this deliverer and sees them 
repent before him, turn away from idols, turn towards God, turn away from the gods of the Moabites and turn towards the true and the living God. And we see repentance there. But what this also shows is another aspect of who our God is, how long suffering he truly is, that he chooses to wait 18 years for the nation of Israel to cry out to him. 18 very long, very hard, 18 years for them to turn back to him. Now, if I'm being honest with myself, I haven't waited 18 years for anything in my life. And chances are you probably haven't either. I mean, Prime Day came up the middle of uh, this last month and I ordered uh, some sprinklers for my yard because parts of my yard was dying. And after a couple of days, it said, these will be here in 21 days. I canceled that order. I went to Jerry's and bought the very items that I needed. And uh, therefore my yard is getting greener and greener again. As you can tell, if I can't wait 21 days, I'm definitely not like God waiting 18 years to see him deliver them. And yet God is so long suffering and so patient with them to see them finally humble themselves, cry out and repent of their sins. Which then leads to, after their repentance, God's restitution for them in verses 15 through 30. It says here that Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man, the people of Israel sent a tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Okay, let's uh, unpack this one. Um, God raises up a deliverer by the name of Ehud. Now, a few random facts about him. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was a very weak tribe. Uh, they were a small tribe. Uh, and their land was located next to the city of Palm. So it would be natural for God to use somebody from the tribe of Benjamin to deliver them. It also tells us that he's left-handed. Now, it's not surprising because in the tribe of Benjamin, there was a lot of ambidextrous people, but as him being left-handed in that day and age, right-handed was a sign of strength, a sign of power, uh, and a sign of, of, of strength there. And so God says, and, and they looked down upon left-handed people. And so he raises up this left-handed guy. Now, some commentators believe that um, Ehud was maybe handicapped in his right hand and therefore the left hand was the only option that he had. We don't know that for sure, but it also would explain why they maybe the secret service of Eglon was maybe disarmed by uh, uh, Ehud being a threat towards the king. But whatever the case may be, he straps a dagger that was 18 inches long onto his right thigh so that when he would go to grab it, he could grab it across his body. Now, if you were to... Uh, assume that everybody who was of strength or power or who had a threat was always right-handed, you, if you were secret service, you would only touch the left leg because you would assume that he was going to grab it from his opposite side. The other thing we know about Ehud is he carries the tribute. Now, this was a gift or a tax given to King Eglon to appease him for another year, saying that we will be faithful to you, we will serve you, and a show's... Uh, that faithfulness there. And obviously Ehud was trusted by the nation of Israel because he was the one called to steward it and to take it. Okay, what do we know about Eglon? He's the king of Moab. So he's the king who comes in, uh, teaming up with these other two nations and 
takes them and, and takes control of the nation of Israel. The other fact that he says is he's very fat, okay? Uh, or to be a little more PC, really obese. Uh, for all of you who love random facts about the Bible, this is the only guy who's called really fat in the Bible. Uh, so there you go. Uh, anybody watch Star Wars? Okay, very few of you. Now, this is how I can tell that you are in Steve's church because Steve had never watched any Star Wars movies before COVID. Uh, and then during COVID, he was pressured enough that he finally watched them. And so there's at least one good thing that came out of COVID. He saw Star Wars. <laughs> but how many of you uh, have actually seen Star Wars? Not that you actually like it, but you've seen it. Okay, there we go. A few more of you. Think of Jabba the Hutt. Remember how big he is? That's what Eglon is, okay? Uh, he's huge. Now, I'm not going to step in it any further than that, but um, he was really big. Let's just put it that way. Now you can cue the Star Wars music at that point, uh, and you can get that picture. Now, uh, let's jump into verses 18 through 23. Um, eight years ago, I was teaching at Ecclesia. I used this passage as an illustration. We were meeting at the cafeteria at the time, uh, and I said, I'm using this as an illustration because we would never teach this on a Sunday morning. And here we are eight years later, and we are now looking at it on a Sunday morning. So I am very now eating my own words, uh, and we're doing that. And so I thought it was very funny when our teaching team got together. We said, let's teach through the book of Judges. And then Steve parted out the passages, and I ended up with Ehud. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And if you're like, why are you saying that? Let's read verses 18 through uh, 23, and you will find out. Uh, so when... Ehud had finished presenting the tribute and sent the people away who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the door on the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Now you know why I said that would probably never be a passage taught in Sunday morning. But we teach verse by verse through the book of the Bible. So we're covering this passage. And all week I was thinking all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for our lives. So let's look at Ehud and what just took place here. So Ehud hands him the tribute, this gift or this tax for Eglon. He starts to head out. Some of Ehud's men follows out with him uh, and he turns back to the king gets close to him and says, I have a secret message on behalf of God for you. Eglon says, silence, which was signs for his secret service to like leave the room, get out of here. I want to hear what he has to say. I want to hear what the God of the Hebrews has to say to me. And so uh, he gets out. Secret service would have been like, you know what? He's a Benjamite. Uh, he's left-handed. He's not really a threat. He's probably okay. Uh, will give the king his space. Um, and Ehud gets up close to him and says, I have this message from God, pulls out this 18-inch dagger out of his right thigh, gets close to the king, stabs the king with the dagger. The king's 
that encloses the dagger, the, the handle, and where he can't pull it out. So he pulls his hand out, leaves the dagger inside of him, locks the door, and escapes. This is in the Bible. I am not kidding you. Um, we just read that. And so what happens? What do the secret service do at this time? Verse 24, when he had gone, the servant came, and when they saw that the door of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited there until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the door of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lie their Lord dead on the floor. So here they are, Ehud's left, he's locked the door, and they're like, what is taking Eglon so long? Like, what's going on here? Why is he just sitting in there? And then they could smell it. Remember the dung came out from the dagger? And they're like, oh, he's in the bathroom. Until they've waited so long that they're like, we're actually embarrassed at this point. And they open the door, get the key, open the door, and there's Eglon dead on the floor. And before they can even realize what happens, they're in shock. Meanwhile, Ehud is halfway back to Ephraim. And we see this take place in uh, verse 26. Ehud escapes while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped Shura. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the, and the Israel had rest for 80 years. So here's the secret service and they're in shock. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle this. And Ehud runs back to Ephraim, back to uh, the nation of Israel. He sounds the trumpet, gets a whole army of men. They come back. And before uh, the Moabites have any time to gather, deal with their shock, deal with their dismay, deal with their trauma, he comes in and takes out 10,000 of the Moabite able men army and blocks uh, the Jordan and Israel is able to subdue the Moabites, and they have rest for 80 years. God uses this left-handed judge to take down this great nation. And for the longest time of any judge, Israel experienced rest with God and rest for the land. And God uses this left-handed judge to do great and mighty things. All right, well, Shamgar is not going to top Ehud but we have one verse left and uh, let's finish out and close up this chapter. Shamgar, verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, we don't know a ton about this, this guy. We know that obviously the Philistines had come in and conquered. Israel probably was in rebellion at the time. Uh, they repent and they come out and God raises out uh, another judge in Shamgar to come in and take down the Philistines. Now, I would say Shamgar is a street fighter, if I was to use modern language, because this guy knows how to use a farming tool, okay? Uh, he uses an ox goad. Now, how many of you have ever used an ox goad before? Didn't think so. Not on many of us. So he uses the ox goad, which was used by farmers 
It was a stout stick about eight to 10 feet long uh, and six inches in diameter. It had a sharp metal tip on it to probe the ox or uh, to turn the oxen. So if the oxen was out there and he's like, you know what, I wanna go this way, he'd just come in the farmer and he'd probe him over here to get him to turn back this way. And if he turned this way, he'd probe him over here to get him to turn back. And sometimes that oxen would just sit down and say, I'm done, I'm hot, I'm tired, it's dusty. And he would just probe him to get him back up and to start plowing the fields again. On the other end of this stick was a flat curved blade for cleaning the plow. So when the plow kind of got stuck and stuff got stuck in there, he'd, he'd clean it off and he'd use that. So it says that Shamgard here grabs an ox goat, a farming tool, and kills 600 Philistines with it. Now, we don't know if that was all at once or of a certain period of time, but that's why I call him a street fighter uh, because Shamgar goes Chuck Norris on somebody, 600 of them. Or if you're like, I don't know who Chuck Norris is, he goes Jack Bauer on somebody if you're my age. Or if you're a lot younger than me, he goes Jack Ryan on them and he takes down an entire army of 600 Philistines with an ox goat, okay? Chuck Norris, Jack Bauer, and Jack Ryan have nothing on Shamgar. So uh, next time Hollywood wants to make a, a new film, Shamgar might be the guy. But what do we see as common in all three of these judges from Othniel to Ehud to Shamgar? They use the tools and resources God has given them to advance God's kingdom and fulfill God's calling. But I think too many of us, too many of us are saying, focus on what we don't have and saying, God, I will serve you if I have X, Y, or Z, instead of taking the tools and resources that God has put in front of you right here and right now that God wants to use you to advance his kingdom. If God can take a guy who has been trained by a great military family and use it to overthrow a nation, if God can use a left-handed, weak, small guy from a small tribe, Ehud, to take down the Moabites, and if God can use Shamgar with a farming tool to take down the Philistines, Imagine what he can do with your life and my life. That when we stop justifying away, going, you know what? When my kids are grown, then I'll serve God. What if you partner with your kids and you live on mission with your kids and you see the next generation go? Or you know what? I'm retired now. I had my time. I raised my kids. I don't need to serve God. I don't need to invest in God's kingdom. Let somebody else do it. We're focused in on what we don't have when God is calling us to live right here and right now. Or God, when I get a little bit more money uh, and I don't have to step out in faith, then uh, I'll invest in your kingdom in that regard. And the reality is, is we stop using the gifts and resources from an ox goat, a left hand, or a reputation with a family to use and advance God's kingdom. And we start focusing on what we do not have. I love this paraphrase from E.M. Bounds. It said, the world is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men and women who understand the basics, the power of the Holy Spirit, having a wise strategy and being steadfast in courage. God is calling you and I to say, take your day, 
Start each day with your hands open, your posture open like this. God, use me today. What resources you've given me, may I use them today for your kingdom. May I use my time. May I use my energy. May I use uh, and talk to people that you would bring into my life. May I do that today because I understand the power of your spirit and your desire is that none would perish and all would come to repentance. So may I encourage somebody today who's walking with you or may I lead somebody to Christ who's not walking with you. But then they have a wise strategy, whether it's an ox goad, a left hand, or a reputation from a family member. And he uses that with a strategy to do great things. And then all three of these guys, guys had a strong, steadfast courage. They didn't doubt God. They didn't wrestle with God. They didn't go, did he really say that? Did he really call me to that? No, Ehud was confident. Othniel was confident. Shamgar was confident. And they lived this courageous life for God. And I think we are too busy being passive and doubting and wrestling with what God has called you to do. So what has God given you to advance his kingdom? If it's a job, use it as the mission field. Jesus' number one mission field was not overseas. It was in the marketplace. So as you are going to the marketplace, as you're living your life, make your career, your job, your mission field. If you have a home, host people. Bring them over. Share a meal together. Share about and remember God's faithfulness. Uh, work on not forgetting about God's goodness in your life and how he's delivered you and guided you and do that over a meal. If you have money invested in God's kingdom and advancing God's kingdom, that could be investing in what God is doing here at Ecclesia. That could be partnering with things like Every Child, Dove Medical, uh, Eugene Life Change Program, uh, Love for Lane County, and many others that are doing God's work in our city to see the kingdom of God advance. If you have a car, transport people to church. It's probably one of the easiest things. Pick somebody up on your way in. If you've got time, serve others. Times is one of those things where you can earn a lot more money. Uh, you can get different jobs. You can change homes. Times is something you will never get back. So devote it for eternity. So what has God given you? And may you use it for his goodness. And may you use it for others' blessing. Let's pray.